hospital software actually shouldn't be that much different. It should be just like, uh, you know, Apple products where you just kind of know how to use it. Like none of us trained to use Dropbox and Facebook and all the, the other consumer stuff. Welcome to the Redox podcast. I'm your host, Nico Skibaski, co-founder and president of Redox, where we are on a mission to make healthcare data useful and in turn, enable the frictionless adoption of technology in healthcare. The Redox podcast explores the intersection between healthcare and technology. How is tech making a difference? What are the barriers to adoption and how are they being overcome? We talk to some of our industry's brightest minds, up and coming technologists and health tech legends that have paved the way for what's to come. One thing is certain, healthcare will change dramatically over the coming years. My hope is that you'll leave these conversations with a bit more context, along with a jolt of optimism to continue working for a better healthcare. With that in mind, I welcome you to the Redox podcast. Aaron Patzer is the founder and CEO of Vital, an AI-powered software for hospital emergency rooms and patients. After earning his master's degree in electrical engineering from Princeton, Aaron was working on his PhD when he decided to change course and pursue the path of an entrepreneur. Along the way, Aaron has had successes at a number of companies, and most notably Mint.com, which he founded in 2006 and eventually sold to Intuit. One of the things I'm super excited to talk with Aaron about is what that journey was like and some of the parallels that we're seeing in the healthcare space, You know, the shift towards consumerism and how consumers are thinking about their data, both how it related in the finance world back then, as well as uh, what's going on today with, with consumer health data and how people are thinking about opening up an application ecosystem on top of that. Last year, of course, Aaron launched Vital to bring a similar consumer-focused mindset to the emergency rooms and hospital setting. So Aaron, thanks for joining us on the Redox podcast today. Thanks for having me, Nico. Let's start kind of early on. You know, um, I read that putting yourself through college, you were building websites, and then that involved you know, a startup that uh, you, you realize that it should be a lot easier to manage finances uh, than the tools at the time, which were kind of these um, bigger, more clunky systems. Can you talk us through that experience and what led you to start Mint.com and some of the, the journey early on? Sure. So I'm from a place called Evansville, Indiana, uh, and I, I sort of hope you've never heard of it. It's not, not, not a particularly big place, not a fun place to grow up. And in some sense, the the internet saved me. Um, so I started building websites uh, in high school, maybe 1996, saved up enough money to go to, to Duke and then later Princeton. But I was sort of commingling my personal and my business finances, and it wasn't great, uh, the accounting side of things. So I started using uh, Microsoft Money and, and later Quicken. And I was pretty pretty obsessive as a teenager, you know, accounting for every every dollar and cent and figuring out how profitable things were. And one day in college, I, I just realized I was putting way more effort into the system than the benefit it was giving me. And I thought, geez, why can't it categorize transactions? Why doesn't it know what Amazon is or what Chevron is uh, or what Safeway is? And uh, started to correlate transactions with, uh, with the US Yellow Pages to categorize them. And then I realized if you could tell where people were spending, um, then they could set reasonable budgets. And if you knew what interest rates they were getting on their uh, bank accounts, their credit cards, their student loans, you could do, you could call it advertising, but advertising done right. So the we would only show you something we calculated would save you at least $500 a year. So move into a bank account with a higher interest rate, consolidate these student loans and make a, you know, save a few thousand dollars a year. And that became the business model. And we took on Intuit and Microsoft. We put Microsoft money out of business, which was kind of a shock. And then uh, we put Quicken Online out of business and then were acquired by Intuit. 
And then because I had been shit talking quick and so much, they, they made me run that, that product once I, once we required it into it. That, that's funny. It's like, well, if you think you can do better, now's your opportunity. Go for it. One of the things that I want to dig into with that story, there was a lot of, well, well, I guess let's start on the consumer side. So at the time, the products that were out there weren't all that compelling to consumers. So, so from my perspective, mint.com was really kind of this first, the first application that caught my attention outside of like my banking portal that I was using to combine things together. And I saw that transition into, you know, nowadays there's sort of a fintech app for every sort of edge and corner of the, the financial ecosystem. Mint.com to me seemed like this catalyst that started springing the industry into that and really paved the way for a lot of these other applications. Early on, it was using uh, like screen scraping, right? To, to get financial transactions out of portals. At least that's, that's, that was my understanding. I'd love for you to talk to us about kind of how that technology evolved um, from the screen scraping world into kind of how, the, how these applications work today in, in the fintech space. Well, we have to go back sort of 13, 14 years uh, when I started the company in 2006. So online banking was was starting to take off and you could, you could access uh, pretty much every bank online at that point, which, which wasn't the case four or five years prior. But because of the peculiarities of, of laws that occurred around the Great Depression, the U.S. has about 12,000, or at the time had about 12,000 uh, banking and financial institutions, which is more than the rest of the world combined. Uh, I'm sitting at our, our product and engineering offices in Auckland, New Zealand. There are seven banks here. You know, most countries have a few dozen at most. And the U.S. had uh, 12,000. Um, and so people have their financial relationships scattered. You typically have your, your credit card at different places, your savings account and your student loans with someone else and your investments definitely somewhere else. And so the idea was we wanted to pull all those together. Now, at the time, the only way to do that was to basically provide a bank username and password. And if you looked really closely at the terms of service at Mint, it would say, you grant Mint a limited power of attorney to act on your behalf, kind of like a financial advisor, to go in and retrieve your banking transactions for that purpose only. And I remember pitching this idea to venture capitalists and they said, no one is ever going to trust a startup with their bank username and password. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't give that to my brother. And I said, you know what? I think that it's the only way to do it because it's the only way that it makes it easy. And so if you can make it easy and you can make it trustworthy and trust has a lot to do with name. I spent a lot of time acquiring mint.com as a domain name. It took a year and a lot of negotiation. The ease sort of trumps everything else, so long as you've got the security in place. And, and to this day, I don't think that Mint has ever had any security breach. I can tell you about all the things that we did there. It was pretty fancy. We got some of the best cryptographers in the world who were friends of mine to, to help design the system. But at the other competitors, and I can barely you know, remember their, their names uh, at this point, they all thought that that was a bad route to go. You shouldn't ask for usernames and passwords. You should go into your banking account. You should download like a CSV file, or sometimes it was called OFX, which is an XML file. That was the format that um, Quicken preferred. You would download that to your computer and then um, you know upload it. And I was like, well, first off, no one's ever going to take the time to log into their banking. If, if they're logging into 10 different places, then they've already got the information that they need. And no one's going to remember to do that. Whereas Mint could update your accounts you know, multiple times a day so that the information was considerably fresher. And so it was real cloud-based software before people sort of talked about the cloud. 
And yeah, I guess it was kind of revolutionary in the sense that no one else was was doing that. And I think we were the first acquisition above $100 million for 11 or 12 months after the financial crisis. You know, my name is actually in the Urban Dictionary. It's called Pulling a Patzer When You Sell a Company Apparently Too Soon. So I sold it for $170 million. I was the only founder. You know, I'm not from a wealthy family. I'm from the Midwest. And I thought, wow, this is pretty damn good. And then I got a lot of heat. They were like, well, you could have held on for a couple of years and sold it for a lot more. Do, do, you, have, do you have regrets around that? Not really. To draw some corollaries to uh, what you just described from a data acquisition standpoint, it's it's really funny, you know, thinking about how data moves within healthcare. There were and there are companies out there who go into patient portals and try to scrape data out of it, your lab results and your med lists and other things that might be in your patient portal. Patient portals, you know, are are they can wildly differ. Uh, we also have a, a very fragmented ecosystem, like you described in the banking world, how there's so many different places where you might have your financial data. Similarly with with healthcare, right? Your lab is different than where you got your radiology done. It's different than your primary care provider who's looking at a lot of the data. So there's this kind of web of uh, these various endpoints where you might receive care. And then, of course, companies that try to figure out how to pull it all together. In the healthcare world, the, the kind of ETL process you described around pulling down a CSV or, or that XML file, very similar in what we have with, you know, people pulling down CCDs and trying to use a, a, a CCD, which is, you know, an XML file to load into an, a new system. And then I was, I couldn't help but think, you know, with Microsoft and Intuit kind of big players moving into the space of trying to help people consolidate their finances. Early on in the digital health world, we had um, Microsoft Health Vault and we had uh, Google with a health product trying to consolidate people's health information and allow people to kind of put that in one place. And of course, both of those companies failed because they were going about it in, in that method that you described of people trying to do an ETL. Like whenever they had new data, they had to enter it themselves, either through some manual data entry or trying to upload something that they've downloaded from a patient portal. Those projects famously failed. But I, I think we're at the brink right now of many, many more of these personal health record companies. And um, a lot of them call themselves, you know, where where the mint.com for healthcare is kind of the the thing that they say. Like the I've been pitched on that at least a dozen times over the last, you know, 10 years since selling mint. So what what do you when someone pitches you on that, what what what's your thoughts? Like why isn't there a mint.com for healthcare and why why could or or shouldn't there be? Oh, this is uh this is a deep question and has a number of layers. So <laughs> let's begin with in some sense why Mint uh, worked, and then what's different in healthcare, both on a consumer behavior level and on a data level. Okay, so first, why did Mint uh, work? All right, first, I or the company spent probably fifty percent of their effort doing you know really crappy screen scraping and having bank connections go up and down all the time, and having ING and Bank of America block us because we represented like. 30 to 50% of their web traffic at certain points in time. But the advantage that we had in maintaining, you know, 12,000 different connections, it wasn't quite that bad because a lot of the smaller banks use the same banking software. So you just need to have to find the pattern. But it's a hard problem. I mean, you can tell it's a hard problem because Plaid got acquired for like $4 billion for effectively solving this problem uh, even better than, than we had. However, all of the information was available online, all of it from pretty much every bank, you know, by the mid uh, 2000s. And that's what made Mint possible. 
everybody had an online banking portal and online banking usage was 50 to 80% of consumers, you know, at least had like a login. I don't think that people have anywhere near that adoption of patient portals. So until they sign up, you can't scrape for one. And second, health information is still 20 years behind. It's not all online. It's not even where banking was in 2005. It's stuck on Windows desktops in your primary care doctor's office. You know, let's not forget that most of our medical interaction is probably not at a hospital that has a big IT system, but is probably at like your local clinic that's not got connected records, that's running at best, you know, a Windows server sitting in a closet, certainly not on AWS or Azure or one of the cloud uh, providers where somebody else could, could access it, even if, you know, there were a system and even if there were permissions to do so. So where the data is actually physically stored matters. That I think is one of the biggest hindrances. And the second one is uh, consumers really, even if they have the right to access to that data, don't and only do, you know, in the patient portals of a Cerner and Epic, which is a small fraction of, of the data. And even those who have the right don't have the logins. Okay. So we've covered that. A couple other problems. So we'll go through a couple of technical problems first. In the U.S., all banking transactions are in pretty much all in U.S. dollars. So you don't have any units problems. If you look at lab results, some of them are like milligrams per deciliter and other ones are like micrograms per microliter, whatever it is. Some of them are like ranges, like it's the same test, but it's just in different units. And like the normalization problem to get trends across different places is, is considerably harder because the data is more variable. With banking, you just have a credit, a debit, and an amount. And that's it. You don't have, you know, positive, negative, a bunch of values that have ranges that have different units. I'm not saying it's not solvable. I'm just saying that that part makes it a little bit harder. And there's much more information available. Leaving aside imaging and radiology, uh, freeform text and making sense out of those, we at Vital, we have a lot of uh, technology around natural language processing to actually read freeform text. We'll get into that later. But then let's get to the consumer adoption problem. So a lot of people who purport to be the mint.com for healthcare, if they're going after the consumer, they have a key behavioral issue. So let me ask you a question, Nico. Uh, when was the last time you went to the doctor? I do not recall. <laughs> oh, it was in March. I broke my collarbone. So yeah, um, in uh, almost a year ago now. Oh, sorry to hear about that. But yeah, so it's you go to the doctor once a year, like people outside of chronic illness, particularly men who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s, we don't go to the the hospital or the doctor much. Yep. And so at least with Mint, you pay your bills once a month, you pay your rent, you get a paycheck probably every two weeks. It provides a natural cadence to go back into the system so that you have real retention. Every single product that I've seen claims to be the mint for healthcare and may do a good job aggregating, whether it's your health insurance and all of your costs, whether it's uh, your lab values, all of them suffer from a retention problem because you only log in a couple times a year. It's not that valuable. There's nothing to drive you back to it. Even if you were managing your entire family, which would be the best way. If I were doing this, I'd go after moms and with, with kids, 
who get sick a lot and go to the hospital and have a bunch of immunizations and whatnot. And even that, we're talking at best every couple of months for most normal situations. Or you have to focus your product exclusively on people who are older and don't use technology that much. That's not going to work. Or the chronically ill, maybe. And that's why, from a consumer perspective, all of these portals and aggregation systems, even if they were automated, that's, that's a fundamental consumer behavioral problem that uh, I've never seen somebody overcome. It's one of the reasons why we're going after hospitals, not consumer. Isn't that interesting? Given that, that Mint.com for Healthcare should be, the guy, be done by the guy who did Mint.com. At Mint, you were able to turn this, these massive amounts of complex and regulated data into these easy-to-use financial products. But for the reasons you just described, that would be quite difficult to do or potentially impossible or not as valuable to do in the healthcare space because of the consumer behavior aspects that, that you discussed. What are the lessons that we can take from your time at Mint and, and how could those be applied in the healthcare space? So I, I think you mentioned one of them, kind of you know thinking about the mom as the, the CMO of the household, right? What else can we learn from that? Oh, there's a lot that you can learn from Mint in healthcare. One is that uh, hospitals and big EHRs act exactly like the big banks did, which means that they think the key is to control your data. They're like, well, if we have all the data and it's only on our patient portal and we oppose, as Judy did, as the CEO of Epic sent out a letter to all of her customers and said, hey, don't support these new health and human services rules that would require interoperability and you know, consumers to have free access. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt privacy. There's, there's not enough controls over it. Well, the truth is it's self-serving. They, they want to control all the data. And so with banks, they wanted to have all of your, your personal finance data because they were like, well, if it's kind of a hassle to see your complete financial picture, then you really ought to just you know, not use E-Trade. You should, you should use our crappy trading platform that costs a, a, a bit more. And you should use our mortgage. And, and then you would have a complete financial picture. It's just all with Bank of America, Chase, whoever. And we think wrongly that the way to retain customers is not through better service, better products, and better rates, which is what you should do, but by holding you, in some sense, hostage to making it, quote, if, from their perspective, they're like, well, we're making it more convenient by having it all in one place, but at, but at a great expense of a bunch of other things. And so hospitals have the same sort of thinking, right? They think, well, uh, we're going to keep all of your data. You should go to our primary care doctors who are LinkedIn, who are already using our, you know, Epic Concern or portals or all scripts or whatever. And you should go to the hospital that has those records. And now we're going to have a complete health picture of you. So that's going to help us retain customers in our health system. There, there's kind of two things that I want to call out here. The first is in the banking world, at least as far as I understand it, there is no EHR equivalent. Like, is there a vendor or a set of vendors that has the sort of power and influence that we see in the healthcare side, because in healthcare, you know, we have Epic, we have Cerner, we have these vendors who, you know, largely grew through the government subsidies of meaningful use. They're now in a very powerful position to help kind of guide and dictate, or or at least be a very loud voice in this data portability versus privacy argument that's playing out right now. Well, in the banking, it's probably less pronounced. All of the big banks, all of the top 10 or 20 banks have their own homegrown IT systems, effectively their own banking platform. But there are four to 8,000 credit unions and smaller banks who, are, who really use one or two vendors who supply that software. Yeah. And, and, and then, of course, the at the center of the argument right now around privacy is that 
okay, if we open up all of the data from these health systems and you know allow any application to interact with it, a consumer-driven application, so consumers can pick whatever app, whatever potential app is trying to position themselves as the mint.com for healthcare, consumers will have the ability to choose that and say, my data is at these five health systems so that that app theoretically should be able to go and utilize the APIs provided by those health systems in their EHRs to pull down the data into that application to do whatever that application is, whether it's combining it all together and giving you a different view of it, uh, sharing it with others, providing other tools on top of it. That is the sort of the spirit behind the legislation. And I fully support that. Patients should own their data because it's information about your own body. Yeah. And it's, and you know, th this is, this was established with HIPAA that it is the patient's right to have their data and to be able to utilize it. Now we're getting to the point where the new ONC and CMS rules from HHS are actually suggesting the actual type of API that should be used, a smart on fire API, such that a developer should be able to meet the specifications of that API and work across any one of these healthcare organizations. The, the way that, you know, we, we had Anish Chopra on the, the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he, the way that he talked about it is kind of a net neutrality perspective of if you own the pipes, you know, the, the actual data that uh, supplies these applications, you cannot also control the application layer because then you can, you can use your market position to promote applications that you want built on top of it, which is exactly what you were talking about as the bank, you know, use our portal instead of the tools that consumers might want to use to manage this. It does not surprise me that, uh, that I agree with Anish on this. Um, he brought me into the White House a couple of times when I was running Mint uh, in order to, he wanted to do a mint.com for government spending and budgets to make it uh, really clear to everyone, you know, with a good user interface where all the money was going and, you know, the drill down that Mint has into different categories and subcategories. He's a great guy. That, that That's awesome. Yeah. And it, it's so funny because I, I look at Anish, Anish's impact from the healthcare perspective, but it's always so fun talking with him because he has a very, a very much wider, broader view on data and government, obviously. So as a CTO, he was looking across you know, the financial sector uh, as well as the energy and healthcare and you know every, everything else in between budgets, how they spend money. But yeah, so so the thing I want to get to that, that I think is, is interesting is kind of the decoupling of the actual bank, or, or in our case, the hospital or the health system that is helping to generate these data. And then the consumer applications that are actually, that our consumers are choosing to utilize to turn that data into information. Like that's the information layer, the applications that are, are crunching that information. The way that we saw that play out in finance is, is that is that it did decouple. Do you think that, that that's required to make that ecosystem work, that data access layer needs to be decoupled from the, the data storage, which is the, the EHR? Or can we actually create an ecosystem where the EHRs will be open enough and provide sort of an open standard such that applications can exist on top of it? Well, I don't know that in fintech that it has been decoupled by regulation or decree or by API. Banks still don't have great APIs. I mean, uh, even Plaid to some degree relies on screen scraping or direct connections that they've negotiated with the banks rather than you know, APIs um, that have been legislatively opened up. So there is still what uh, is, is called adversarial interoperability. So Corey Doctorow uh, of the Electronic Freedom Foundation actually wrote about this back in October and used Mint as one of the examples. And it's basically, you know, what we what we would do with screen scraping banks is there was like a bank of cable modems with, you know, 30 different IP addresses. So one of them couldn't get blocked that would just randomly select one and scrape out of a bank. 
And so, yeah, banks didn't want this and they haven't opened themselves up and, and they've fought you know, regulation on this. Um, and I expect fully that the, the health systems and the EHRs will do the same. But ultimately, what you have to say in the press and in your personal life and in your business dealings is you have to have the principle that the data is owned by the patient. This is their data and it is absolutely patronizing that because a lot of doctors don't want to give the patient's data. They're like, oh, they'll ask more questions. They won't know how to interpret it. They've done studies that's proven not to be the case. Adversarial interoperability. You probably want to risk Yeah, that's a good term. Yeah. So you get interoperability because the consumer has permissioned you. You know, you put in your terms of service, you know, uh, at Mint, we did the sort of limited power of attorney, whatever the equivalent is in, in healthcare. And if and when they, they fight it, like we had a couple of banks block us on Mint. And once you get enough consumers, we would go with what I would call the nuclear option, which we'd put up a, a little sign that says, you know, ING Direct doesn't want you to have your data. Here's the name and number of all the customer service that you can call and complain and say, I think my data is mine and I've authorized Mint to have it. And I can tell you, it only takes a few days. Uh, once you reach a certain scale, now the danger is until you reach that scale, Mint was able to do this because we had you know, millions of users, but it's very effective because it's principle, because you should be outraged when somebody's holding your data hostage. The battle for consumer data back then, just hearing about it playing out, it, it makes me feel like we're about to enter something very similar in the, in the healthcare space. Yeah, but I've had this battle before. <laughs> You're ready to put the gloves back on. Um, let, let's let's transition then. I, I'd love to talk about Vital and you know. So so after Mint, you know, you acquired by Intuit, kind of a, a product manager there, and then ended up leaving there, and you founded Fountain, um, and have invested in a num number of digital health startups. So what attracted you to to digital health? And how did you find that journey to Vital from, from what you're doing after Intuit? Sure. So after Mint was acquired, I ran the personal finance group at Intuit. So as an officer of the company, did that for maybe a year and a half, but I had a three-year contract. So then I became VP of product innovation across Intuit. A lot of uh, sort of what QuickBooks Online is, I, I helped uh, redesign. Left in 2013 and I started Fountain, which was on-demand video expertise. So you would type a question, it would use natural language processing to figure out what skills were needed to you know, solve that question. Like uh, I'm having troubles with my knee, it would know that's a medical question. Or my, my dog can't keep any food down, it would know that should go to a veterinarian. Um, and it would ping 10 or 20 people and the first one to sort of answer the call would video chat with you and actually be able to diagnose issues, sort of think of it like a Skype or a FaceTime on demand. It worked okay, but the biggest categories we had were medical and veterinary. And so it got me thinking a little bit more about the medical space. And it just so happens that uh, a lot of people in my personal life are in the medical field. So I started Vital with Dr. Justin Schrager, who is my brother-in-law. He's an emergency physician at Emory University and teaches there as well. My sister is, I think, the youngest tenured professor in the surgery department, although she's really an epidemiologist. Um, my dad worked at Bristol-Myers-Squibb, the big pharma company that's known for its sort of uh, cancer drugs. My sister-in-law or ex-sister-in-law now is uh, an emergency room doctor. So I had a lot of exposure during the holidays. I would always wonder, you know, what, what, is, what is my brother-in-law doing? Why is he on the computer? And he's like, oh, let me show you. And I'm filling out notes from you know, two or three days ago. And I was like, seriously, you have to do like 100 clicks. What are you, what are you doing using Windows 98 software in 2017 is sort of when we started the company. And I was pretty shocked at 
how bad the software was and how much time he was spending on it. And I, I found a statistic online that said that doctors and nurses now spend two hours you know, in the HR and doing paperwork for every hour that they spend with patients, plus another hour and a half at home. And I was like, that's ridiculous. And if you could flip that equation, you know, two hours of patients, an hour in the software, you've basically doubled the number of doctors and nurses we have. And we have shortages of those people and they're really important and they're overworked and they frankly hate the software that's out there. It's one of the biggest dissatisfiers for them. And so we started, you know, with the emergency room, both because Dr. Schrager is an emergency room doctor, but also it's the entry point into the hospital. I think 60% of people who enter the hospital these days do so by being admitted through emergency room. It's a microcosm of the whole hospital. You've got labs and pharmacists and equipment. Time is, is um, obviously very crucial. You've got all the note taking. It's a microcosm of the a hospital. So in some sense, the hardest place that you could start out. And so Vital is software for the hospital emergency room and for emergency room patients. So as soon as you walk in the door, you say what, you know, what ails you at the registration desk, you give them a mobile number and it'll message you a mobile web app, no download required, no passwords, just a, it's a special link. And then you, you enter some information as a two-factor authentication there. And it'll tell you what your wait times in the emergency room are. So what we're doing behind the scenes is... <laughs> We're, I'll give you a plug. We're using Redox with Emory and all of our other hospitals, and we're looking at the timing of all of the messages. So we're looking at all of the ADT feeds and the ORU and RRM, and when things are ordered, when they're resulted, when they're finalized, when notes are taken, when they're started, when they're, they're completed. We're gathering kind of like the, the timing and the bottlenecks in the emergency room. So we know exactly how long it takes for a patient to go from registering to being triaged, triaged to getting a room, a room to being seen by a nurse for a deeper assessment, how long each of the labs comes back. We know if the CT is the thing that's backed up and how many people are queued at it. And then the patient can follow along and instead of you know being left in, in the dark, because patients are often just absolutely left in the dark, they're sitting out particularly nowadays in the waiting room for three, four, five hours. I've seen waiting times at certain hospitals of eight or nine hours. They have no idea what's going on. No one will talk to them because the doctors and nurses simply don't have the time. They don't want to get sucked into a 20-minute conversation where you ask them, is it this? Your family member is like, why is it taking so long? There's a lot of anxiety around that. And so we have this app that just says, here's what's coming next. You know how we took your, you know, your blood and your urine two hours ago? Well, actually, four out of the five tests have come back. The doctor is going to see you once that fifth one results and it's going to be another 29 minutes and we can say it with a lot of precision and it, it, it just gives people a lot of peace of mind and we've seen it really increasing patient satisfaction and decreasing the burden on doctors and nurses to answer all of those angry questions that is amazing yeah so the, the patient patient app in particular is is doing quite well in the in the marketplace. That's awesome. So a couple questions. So you're you're taking the passive sort of chatter data of what's going on in the background with the EHR, with things being resulted and movement through um, the ED and admissions and all the transfers that happen. From all of that chatter of data, you're estimating and providing those estimates to patients on where they're at in the process and how long it's going to take because you you're, you have this insight over the flow of all of the activities going on in there because you're looking at the data in the background. Yes, this is exactly like what we did at Mint. You know, it's not just your raw banking data with these garbled transactions and the amounts. It's like categorizing it into 
gas groceries going out, how much you're spending, and being able to set an alert on budgets. Here, what we're doing is we're taking the raw data of timing, what's being ordered, how many people have, have, have ordered CTs versus MRIs versus ultrasounds, and we're gathering statistics on it. I mean, I can tell you exactly where your bottleneck is in uh, the emergency room. I can tell you which doctors and nurses are faster than the others. It's some pretty amazing information that's almost looking at the, the meta information, not the data directly, but the interpretation or analysis of the data and how it trends over time. We use a lot of uh, you know, machine learning for that as well. I think we've published three papers so far to predict the probability of admission. We can predict with like 90% accuracy within about 10 minutes of you walking through the door, whether you're going to stay overnight or not, which is pretty amazing. Holy cow. Yeah. So, so talk us through what the either provider or administrator workflow looks like, because it makes sense from a patient perspective and, and why you'd want to see the, this data and you know how it keeps you informed. But what do, what do the providers see? Are providers users or is it really more of an administra- administrative tool? What's, what's going on that side of the, your user base? The clinical interface, uh, you know, it looks, it looks like a consumer product in the sense that it requires no training to use and it's just intuitive. Um, so we focused on the very beginning of the stay, so uh, we can handle registration and triage and taking triage notes. We make predictions about um, ESI, the Emergency Severity Index, which is a big one operationally. You know, about 40% of people in the emergency room probably should have gone to urgent care instead. And being able to separate those into something called fast track, or sometimes it's called army track or vertical track is really important because they get seen by a nurse practitioner or the like, not necessarily a doctor, uh, and get patched up and get typically in and out in like two hours as opposed to six. Unfortunately, nurses, you know, they want to be conservative. They don't want to make any mistakes. So they often up-level people to a three, which is sort of the I don't know category. And as a result, like 60 or 70% of people end up in level three and they they have to go through the whole whole process and it takes them a lot longer. Whereas if they go through fast track, even if they, they made a mistake with the algorithm, you know, it's 95% accurate, that last 5%, they're still within the system and they get pushed over to a bed if they need to. So it's, it's really safe as well, but it has big operational consequences. So if you imagine that 40% of the people should have gone through urgent care and you can save four hours for those 40 people and an emergency room bed costs $250 per hour in order to operate in terms of everybody's salary and the, the overhead, you know, you're talking millions of dollars of operational savings. The other thing that you can do is if you can predict who's likely to be admitted, you know, with these algorithms that are looking at lab results, like we see from the feed exactly when the results for your troponin come back, you know, which is to measure whether there's the enzyme, if you've had a heart attack or not. And so if it's positive, your probability of admission goes way up. And if it's negative, it goes down a bit. And that happens you know, instantly, whereas a doctor or a nurse, they, they would probably be able to tell you whether the person's going to be admitted or not if they had the time to do that, if they saw the results come in. But what we can do is we can tell bed control, who's typically sitting in a different part of the hospital, hey, in the next hour, you're probably going to need five beds. Or in the next three hours, you're going to need eight beds, or you're only going to need one bed, and you can send some people home. Because we can see that before the order for admission comes in, we can potentially see that hours in advance because the algorithms are good enough to do that. And we've published papers on this. So there's big operational things. It's not necessarily clinical decision making. It's more how do we move people in and out of the emergency room in a way that's safe, but also in a way that's that's faster. 
And then, you know, our note-taking system takes about half the time that it does in traditional EHRs. And that's just because we use a modern interface and we pay attention to how many clicks you have. We're pulling information from history where you don't have to have any of the, the smart shortcuts to write text in. It's, it's writing a lot of it for you. Kind of like, um, you know how Gmail now completes your sentences? We can use technology like that. We have an EHR, you know, that uh, that has search capabilities. Wow. Most EHRs, you you know, it's like my name and, and medical record number, which is ridiculous. There's not free text search. And even if there were, you know, um, heart attack won't pick up all the instances of myocardial infarction, which is pretty much a synonym. And it should. That's just That's just modern, you know, natural language processing techniques to figure out what terms are related. And so there's just so much that you can do. It's such low-hanging fruit because the whole system seems, it seems at least 10, if not more years behind. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things I want to call out here is that a lot of the um, controversy or pushback against the role of AI in healthcare is around AI potentially replacing the, the doctor's brain in diagnostics, in suggesting treatments, in um, you know, d- doing things that requires both the art and science of healing in medicine that doctors are so specialized and trained in. But what you're talking about is using it on really low hanging fruit of just making the experience that much more efficient, both for providers as well as more informed for patients. So they know what the heck is going on. And so we're not talking about replacing providers. We're really enabling them with the right information at the right time and helping them be faster at it and more efficient at providing care. That's absolutely true. I have no desire to replace doctors and nurses. What I want to do is like 80% of the stuff that they do is either clerical work or it's like the, the easy standard stuff. Humans are fantastic at the rare cases and the exceptions and thinking outside. AI is really only as good as the data that it's trained on. And so it's it's really good for all the normal cases because it sees a lot of those examples in, in you know the AI training data. And what you want to do is you want to get through all of the, quote, easy stuff quickly so that doctors can focus on the interesting and the difficult things, which only they can do. You know, when we're doing our AI, like for nurses, we let them choose an ESI, the severity level first, without any bias from the AI. And then we say, hey, you chose a three, but the heart rate is 110. And we look through two years of historic records and it looks like this person has, you know, this problem or this transplant or this stuff that you may not have had the time to see because you have 10 seconds before they walk in the room and you're overburdened. Maybe you should, given all of those things going by the rules of the algorithm, it probably should be a two. And they're like, oh, yeah, it, it, it totally should be a two. And so um, we actually make sure that the AI kind of explains itself, which is not a concept that most people are used to, because usually AI is, is quite a black box. Yeah, and I think that's going to be, you know, not to use a pun, but that's going to be vital in the acceptance of AI in, in healthcare, the uh, ex- explanations of the black box. Um, and I love how you kind of baked in, you know, it's, it's, you're baking in human in the loop because you're understanding what is the provider actually saying versus, you know, I imagine that's going back to help feed the the algorithm and help you learn as well what the provider's preferences might be. That's right. You know, no AI can see the, the patient and can see how they're moving and walking or just, you know, those subtle things that somebody with experience almost intuitively knows the vibe or the energy that you get from a from a person or that they're turning green. The, the, the 
algorithms and AI are really good at the objective stuff. You know, what are your vital signs? Even the digital notes, but not necessarily the nuanced in-person stuff. So you, you'll never be able to replace doctors or nurses in that sense. I, I love that you compared, you know, you said you're basically doing what you did at mint.com, categorizing data, um, making that data more valuable to the users. So the mint.com for healthcare is actually not the consumer version of mint.com that we think of, but we could say it's, it's basically what you're trying to do at Vital. One of the one of the other big differences is, of course, in the consumer application space, it's a totally different ballgame as far as how to get to market, how to get the data you need, the data network effects that might come with that. The stereotype in digital health entrepreneurship is that it is very difficult to get a product to market because of the two-year sales cycles, the bureaucracy of having to sell into health organizations who all claim that they are very unique and your product was not made specifically for them. Talk, talk a little bit about where you are from the company's perspective and, and how is the market receiving the product? And um, yeah, what, what, what does that look like? First off, a lot of what you said is true. The sales cycles are really long and it is very different than uh, the consumer world. I mean, one of the things that I almost find humorous and also frustrating is, you know, with, with Mint, you only need one person who is the user to say, yes, uh, sure, I'll sign up and, and make it easy for them to do so. And in a hospital, I swear you you have like 19 yeses of everybody that you, everybody you thought was a decision maker. And then somebody comes out of the corner and was like, and it's always with a title you've never even heard of. I'm not the chief safety officer or the chief information officer. I'm the chief you know, security information officer. And you're like, I, that, I didn't know that title existed. How, where do you sit in this org chart? And you're like, I, they're like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if we need this. And I'm like, I, I, I thought we had all the yeses that we needed. How is it that somebody can come out of left field and just, just with a, I don't know. It's humorous and time consuming. But once you once you get in, uh, it's pretty amazing. And once you've proven yourself, we're I mean we're having such a great time at uh, at Emory. You know, uh, we are their first company to sort of come out of uh, the Emory Innovation Hub. We've had great support there. You know, it's not like we can just sort of do whatever we want and not tell anyone. But you know, there's there's sort of like a little worry because you know patients are a vulnerable population. You have to be secure. You have to be careful. And then once it starts to work, they're like, yeah, do do more of this. Oh, you want to do that? That sounds fantastic. Oh, you want to put a, put a Spanish version? Of, yeah, go ahead. You, you just roll it out whenever it's ready. You know, we don't need to we don't need to see it. That sounds great. You know, you build a certain amount of trust. It's starting to move. Now, that said, it's taken me three years to get here. At the three-year mark at Mint, we already probably had a million users. So, you know, it sort of feels... Feels like a very different time frame that we're operating on at Vital, but at least we're in a bunch of hospitals. You mentioned that your your co-founder, Dr. Schrager, he he's a practicing physician at, at Emory, right? So that was kind of your your leg in. <laughs> yes, it uh, it's a leg in, and of course it, it helps um, with that particular one. Emory being our development partner, you know, it also we had to go through uh, many months of making sure that there wasn't a conflict of interests, making sure that other people do or on the institutional re reviews. We make sure that when we publish like our scientific papers, that it is the primary author is typically outside of Emory and outside of Vital and has absolutely no financial incentive. Usually we're just like, hey, we have a cool idea that we're pretty sure works. Do you want to write a cool research paper? And they're like, yeah, that sounds interesting. And then they put a lot more scientific rigor than necessarily we do as, as engineers who just know that it works. And we get a great paper out of it, or they get a great paper out of it, and we get independent validation. The last, last thing we want to 
to do is, you know, be a Theranos or keep things too secret. I think you should be just absolutely transparent with what you're doing. And I really believe in in that openness. So yeah, there are lots of advantages to having Dr. Schrager at Emory. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking about kind of the the typical process for getting from, you know, zero to one on a digital health company. It's like, how can you get your leg in the door, prove it out at one health organization, hopefully get some clinical evidence behind it, which I really appreciate you explaining kind of how you've brought research into it to help validate a lot of the uh, technology that you're bringing forth. And then if you can get it done at one health organization, uh, have you been able to see the success at Emory help open doors at other emergency departments across the country as you've have you started selling to other organizations? Yes, we absolutely have. We've got a a number of uh, big customers that I can't announce on this podcast, but we'll announce <laughs> in the next you know in the next few months. <laughs> That's super exciting, and I, I love seeing people who you know are clearly tech entrepreneurs been thinking about how to make good software for a long time come into healthcare because as you know. It is so sorely needed. So I really appreciate the efforts that you're bringing into the space and very excited to see, you know, we, we met a couple of years ago as you were tinkering around with Redox, trying to figure out, you know, is this the right solution? And to see it go from you playing with it at three in the morning is when we saw your messages come through to now having launched a company, raised money, seen traction in the market. I'm just really excited to, to see the progress that you've brought into the space and also excited to see where it's going. So you've mentioned a few times you're starting in the emergency department kind of at the very front door, but where do you think this is going to be growing over the next few years? Oh, well, it's uh, my, my team uh, has, has told me not to you know, necessarily publicly talk about all of our, our grand plans. But uh, let's just say that I'm not particularly pleased that most of the software in the hospital space was started in the 1970s and is written in computer languages that uh, are older than you know, us putting a man on the moon. And leave it um, at that. I think that it's important to have a consumer sensibility here. When I was a VP of product innovation at Intuit, you know, I was working on TurboTax, which is used by tens of millions of people, Mint, which is used by tens of millions of people, QuickBooks, which is used by, I don't know, four or five million small businesses at the time. I don't know what the numbers are now. Hospital software actually shouldn't be that much different because there are, I think there are 4 million nurses in the US. I mean, that's consumer level. If you had 4 million users as a, as a consumer level software, you'd be, you'd be pretty happy. And then, you know, there's another million doctors or so on, on top of that. You shouldn't have to spend three solid days or take your surgeon who's, you know, making $30,000 per surgery away for a week to train them up on crappy software. Like it should be just like, uh, you know, Apple products where you just kind of know how to use it. Like none of us trained to use Dropbox and Facebook and all the, the other consumer stuff. Companies wouldn't have been successful if you had to go through training. Thank you so much for for sitting down with me and kind of talking through your story. It's fascinating, the parallels and and also seeing from your perspective, how you're actually bringing those parallels into the healthcare space um, and, and learning from your firsthand experience in, in fintech. So I'm sure our audience will will learn a lot from this discussion. So I know I have. So really appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me and uh, thanks for Redox. We are big fans and we're users and continue to be so. That's my my unsolicited plug. <laughs> you didn't even tell me to say that, but uh, but I am a big fan. Well, and you know that this is this is why we do what we do to to power applications that are actually making a difference on the front line, right? Like 
Redox is a couple steps removed from the patient and um, to be able to hear stories about how going into the emergency room is a very scary experience and to be able to have a little more information about what's going on can reduce that anxiety tremendously. So I, it's hearing these things that, that make me get up in the morning. So thank you. Of course. Hey everybody, it's Nico here again. Wanted to extend another thanks to Aaron Patzer for joining us all the way from New Zealand to talk about Vital. I really loved that conversation. And uh, feel free to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, if you like it, that is. And of course, if you subscribe, you won't miss the next episode of the Redox Podcast where we'll be talking to Ankit Mather from Round Trip Health. They are a transportation company uh, tackling the healthcare space. They're doing some really cool things, improving access to care. So I can't wait to share that conversation with you all. And of course, if you're going to Hims, come hang out with us. We'll be at booth 6443. We're also throwing a party on March 9th. So check out redoxengine.com slash hymns 20 for all the details about all of that. Um, hope to see you there. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the Redox Podcast.